electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is the American Greek Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, Paul Manafort. You've heard about the extravagant clothes. Here is, we submit to you the ostrich coat in question, and we submit it to you without comment. Now, meet the man. I will stipulate for purposes of today that you, know, you could characterize this as influence pedal. For years, influence peddler Paul Manafort builds high-profile connections, then makes tens of millions of dollars selling his access to the players in charge. Manafort was motivated primarily by two things, power and money. I struggle to think of a client Paul Manafort wouldn't have taken on. After decades in D.C., Manafort uses his political savvy and insider connections to earn the biggest payday of his career from pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine. It was definitely in their interest to make sure they had the right people uh, with the right connections and power. But after making millions and illegally hiding his wealth, Manafort loses it all. So what did he do? He just lied. And his effort to hitch himself to a rising star leads to the exposure of a massive bank and tax fraud scheme. It's very sad what's happened to Paul, the way he's being treated. In 2016, presidential candidate Donald Trump makes waves, promising to clean up American politics. We are going to Washington, D.C., and we are going to drain the swamp. That spring, to help secure his party's nomination, the outsider candidate turns to a big-time Washington insider, Paul Manafort. Ken Vogel is a reporter for the New York Times. There's a lot of irony in the Trump-Manafort connection, not the least of which is a candidate who is running as a primary part of his platform on draining the swamp, has just hired to run his campaign the ultimate swamp creature. Manafort's path to the Trump campaign begins years earlier in an industrial town not far from Hartford, Connecticut. Paul Manafort first became enamored with politics at his father's knee. His dad ran for and won the mayorality of New Britain, Connecticut, their hometown. Franklin Forer is a staff writer for The Atlantic. His dad was a, was a guy who practiced a very hard style of politics. But New Britain was also a place that was filled with corruption. Paul Manafort's father was accused and even charged with perjury, but never convicted and had a road named after him, was kind of a hero in his hometown. So it's certainly possible that the son would conclude that you could walk right up to the edge of the line without paying the penalty. In the late 1960s, Manafort leaves New Britain for Washington, D.C., where he attends Georgetown University. While many members of his generation celebrate peace and love, 
He's pictured in the school yearbook flashing a V for victory sign, an apparent celebration of the 1968 election victory of Richard Nixon. After Nixon's resignation in 1974, Manafort, then a lawyer, serves in the White House under his successor, President Gerald Ford. Paul Manafort, even in those early days, showed signs of becoming the master strategist that he would eventually fully realize. He was just this shrewd operator who understood how to get in the head of somebody and to figure out what they wanted and how he could deliver it to them. After helping Ford defeat Ronald Reagan for the GOP nomination in 1976, Manafort works on Reagan's presidential campaign four years later. The, the South will be targeted. It will, it will get specialized media. We will carry uh, the Reagan record to the South, particularly. Uh, he kind of went where he saw an opening. And by the time he was first getting involved professionally around Reagan, that was the hot thing in American politics. It turns out to be a good bet. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Out of Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign, Washington was suddenly flooded with Republicans who'd been out of power for uh, several years. And they had this new power in town. But nobody had figured out how to really capitalize on that power. Manafort will lead the charge on K Street, D.C.'s lobbying center. In 1980, he teams up with two other Reagan campaign veterans, Charlie Black and Roger Stone, who will later work for the Trump campaign. Together, the three men form a political firm with an innovative two-part business model. They were electing people who they established intimate relationships with, and then they would turn around and ask them for favors on behalf of corporate clients. And this was an incredible advantage, and it made them a fortune. The firm's principals bring in six-figure salaries, representing big-name domestic clients, including a high-powered New York real estate developer named Donald Trump. Manafort ran a firm that blew up based on a reputation for getting things done. If you're a lobbyist, you're going to be effective some of the time. You're going to be effective maybe not all of the time. But the important thing is to create the perception of power. And Manafort was a master of that. The way he creates this perception is partially spelled out in a company pitch obtained by NBC News in 1988. The document lists the close political ties that key members of the firm had in the Reagan administration, and it promised that personal relationships with Department of State officials would be utilized to upgrade a back-channel relationship. Though what they're doing is legal, some consider it questionable. Some of the old guard in Washington, D.C. turned up their noses at what Blackstone and Manafort were doing, and they saw it as really unseemly. They were breaking all sorts of norms. They were creating all sorts of new conventions for Washington. And I think it's even possible to say that through their firm, uh, Paul Manafort and his crew did a lot to create the swamp, if you will, as we know it. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. 
because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle, follow your crave. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Over the decades that he works in Washington, Paul Manafort becomes a behind-the-scenes master of crafting politicians' images. When you set up here with all this gadgetry, do you see yourself in the role of the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> no, because if we were, we'd have curtains on the front of the window. <laughs> but in this world of power and money, it's not just American politicians and American lobbying clients who turn to him for help. There were definitely instances before Paul Manafort of lobbyists working on behalf of scuzzy foreign governments, but nobody had made it a cottage industry in quite the same way that Paul Manafort did. He basically went out and found all manner of folks with unsavory reputations who were willing to pay huge sums in order to try to buff their reputations and improve their standing in Washington. The work is not without controversy. The Prime Minister of the Bahamas, Lyndon Pinley, and key officials of his government have long been described in reports of American drug agents as receiving huge payoffs from big-time Colombian and American drug bosses. But in 1984, a Washington lobbying firm run by these men, all of whom are now key advisors in the Bush campaign, went to work for the Pinley government at $800,000 a year. When these reports first surface, Manafort's partner, Charlie Black, denies any wrongdoing, saying the firm would never work for a foreigner whose interests are at odds with those of the United States. But other bad press will follow. In 1992, Manafort's firm, then called Black, Manafort, Stone & Kelly, features heavily in The Torturer's Lobby. Published by the Center for Public Integrity, this report outlines the company's work on behalf of questionable foreign clients said to receive U.S. aid and abuse human rights. There's certainly an argument to be made that Manafort was kind of the angel on the shoulder of some of these arguably very bad people uh, that he was trying to get them to embrace democratic tactics and strategies, but also democracy. That's certainly the way Manafort and his allies saw it. Manafort's detractors say, that's a bunch of bull. It's possible to know who Manafort's firm works for, who they lobby, and how much they make because of a law called the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, created in the 1930s. Madison Square Garden, USA. And 
This is Fritz Kuhn, leader of a German-American Bund, hiding behind the American flag, but taking his orders from Berlin. The Foreign Agents Registration Act was enacted in 1938 in response to congressional concerns about Nazi subversive activities in the United States, in particular clandestine propaganda being disseminated throughout the United States. Now a partner at the law firm of Wigan and Dana, David Lofman once served as chief of the Department of Justice's counterintelligence and export control section. There, he was responsible for enforcement of FARA, the law that requires people like Manafort to disclose their lobbying and public relations work performed in the U.S. on behalf of a foreign power. The whole point of the statute is not to suppress or regulate the content of speech, but when that speech is propagated by people in the United States acting on behalf of a foreign government or a foreign political party to require registration with the government and periodic disclosure so that the American people or U.S. lawmakers can be properly put on notice of who's behind that content so they can weigh what credit or weight uh, to attach to it. In FARA filings like these from the 1980s, Manafort divulges which foreigners he's working for, what he's doing for them, and the vast sums he's paid. Paul Manafort went from being a guy who came from relatively little means to a guy running a firm that was suddenly printing money. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. This was the 1980s, the age of Gordon Gecko, and Manafort was somebody, when he suddenly stumbled upon wealth, really set out to enjoy it. Manafort and his partners and even some of the associates at the firm were wearing flashy tailored suits, driving big, shiny cars, often foreign. He got one of the biggest homes in his friend's set. Uh, when he had a pool, he didn't like where it was positioned, so he had it moved several feet. He would disappear for weeks and come back and expense a Concorde round trip to Paris and a week and a half in the nicest hotel there. He was a guy who was unaccustomed to wealth, and when it came to him, he flaunted it. Working for unsavory foreign clients is not the only way Manafort builds this wealth. In 1989, he tells Congress he's used his inside connections 
to score taxpayer dollars. Uh, we did not think that that was improper. What the system did for this former Reagan campaign director was allow his firm to buy a rundown New Jersey housing development, refurbish it, and his company will receive $31 million in rent subsidies over the next 15 years. Manafort will never face charges. But in June 1989, he is hauled before a House committee where he makes a stunning assertion. I will stipulate for purposes of today that you, know, you could characterize this as influence peddling. He commits this really elementary mistake. He says, yes, I'm an influence peddler. It was actually a very defining moment for Paul Manafort. He was sort of at this point where he was being forced to choose between potentially having some foothold in government and being a full-fledged power lobbyist. And this, talking to some people who worked with him back then, was kind of the breaking point, and he decided to choose the private sector and the big paydays from the lobbying. Following Paul Manafort's admission that he's an influence peddler, in the 1990s, his name largely disappears from the headlines. Paul Manafort's legendary firm gets bought by a big corporate conglomerate. And he creates a new firm, which is a much smaller firm, and he has to hustle for a new set of clients. He really immersed himself in the foreign lobbying scene. That became his gravy train. At a certain point, it appeared as if he was just going to disappear entirely from Washington and really make his home around the world in the employ of some of these fabulously wealthy clients uh, who would be willing to pay him a lot of money. No longer working with his old partners at Black Manafort Stone and Kelly, Manafort looks east. According to the report of Special Counsel Robert Mueller, in 2005, Manafort begins a multi-million dollar working relationship with a Russian billionaire named Oleg Deripaska. John Herbst was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006. He's believed to have a, be among the closest oligarchs to Putin. Um, he's known as an aluminum king. His reputation is, is not a pretty one. Oleg Deripaska developed a reputation as someone not to be messed with. According to the Mueller report, one of Manafort's employees will tell federal investigators that Deripaska pays Manafort millions to help install friendly government officials in countries where Deripaska does business. The pro-Putin oligarch also invests millions in a private equity fund that Manafort launches. In 2005, Manafort begins working in Ukraine for a recently defeated pro-Russia politician named Viktor Yanukovych. Manafort directs his Ukrainian operation from a small office in Kiev. At his side is Rick Gates. Tom Winter is an investigative reporter for NBC News. Rick Gates was kind of Paul Manafort's right-hand man. Kind of a jack of all trades. I mean, he'd be somebody that would put together the financials for Paul Manafort and Rick Gates' company in the morning and then maybe in the afternoon communicate some of the finer points of what Paul Manafort would outlay in strategy. Even though Manafort has mastered the art of crafting political images back in the United States, doing so for Yanukovych is no easy task. He had the image of, let's say, a Soviet factory boss. He had a not-perfect suit. It didn't fit very well. 
it was usually unbuttoned. And when Manafort started working with him, Yanukovych turned into an American dandy. Yanukovych's one-time campaign chair, Taras Chernovil, got a first-hand look at the work Manafort did for his former boss. He taught him to behave by American standards. He had to smile and wear a perfect suit with each button perfectly fastened. The hair had to be perfect, the whole nine yards. This is what he taught Yanukovych. Under Manafort's tutelage, Yanukovych's pro-Kremlin party makes strong gains. And in 2010, the American consultant helps his client defeat Yulia Timoshenko to become Ukraine's president. For his work, prosecutors say Manafort is paid handsomely by Yanukovych's backers, a group of politically-minded, ultra-wealthy, pro-Russian oligarchs. Politics is just part of how they run their business. They fund elections campaigns. Daria Kalinyuk is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Kiev and a longtime observer of the way oligarchs operate in Ukraine. They decide who will win at the elections. And with this influence, they can adopt any law which makes privileges for their companies. Prosecutors working for Robert Mueller say that when these oligarchs pay Manafort for his services, the money doesn't go through normal channels. It was all under the table and all very roundabout. It was all shadow money. According to prosecutors and evidence presented at trial, various oligarchs transfer money into Manafort's secret accounts in offshore banking havens like the Seychelles and Cyprus. They say Manafort will secret away more than $55 million in these hidden accounts. Barbara McQuaid is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. So by uh, sheltering his funds offshore, he was able to reduce his tax bill um, by about $6 million. Manafort uh, began living uh, just a truly extravagant lifestyle really living it up, paying for his family to live similarly extravagant lifestyles. And so he was really spending like a drunken sailor. In 2006, a company linked to Manafort purchases an apartment in Trump Tower for $3.7 million. Six years later, using his untaxed money from Ukraine, he buys this Brooklyn brownstone for $3 million and this 2,000-square-foot, two-bed, two-bath loft in Soho for another $2.8 million. And he spends more on antique rugs than most people spend on their entire home. He bought a million dollars worth of rugs. He wasn't reselling them on the open market. I mean, it seems like he just really liked rugs. Then there are the clothes... In just a few years, Manafort drops $1.3 million at a New York tailor and a Beverly Hills clothier known as one of the most expensive stores in the country. I think when you see $1.3 million in clothing, uh, I think that shocks a lot of people. That's not uh, the normal budget for uh, most of society. Among his purchases is a now infamous $15,000 ostrich skin bomber jacket. I think the ostrich jacket was a metaphor for Paul Manafort's greed. It wasn't enough for him to be successful. He could have been extremely successful if he had just played by the rules. 
But that wasn't enough. He wanted to live a very decadent lifestyle. Paul Manafort's scheme to avoid paying $6 million in taxes is just one of the many secrets he's keeping. After the election of Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine in 2010, his rival, Yulia Tymoshenko, is jailed. The jailing Tymoshenko was a nasty bit of, of business. And it was clearly politically motivated because Tymoshenko was far and away the greatest political rival to Yanukovych. And so his reputation took a big hit. Ukraine still wanted to join the European Union and wanted to show that it was still a democratic country. And so Manafort set about trying to explain away this arrest, to, to say, you know what, this, this woman actually deserved to be in prison. And he did so by setting up a whole lobbying campaign to try to change minds on Capitol Hill. But they did it without making that transparent. Despite the requirements of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, Manafort will later admit in his criminal proceedings that he runs the operation without registering and takes steps to keep it as secret as possible. Money keeps flowing. But in the last months of 2013, the effort comes to an abrupt halt. It has all the signs of a revolution, and it's taking place in Kiev's independent square. Hundreds of thousands and even about a million people went to protest on the streets, demanding dignity, human rights, justice, and saying no to corruption. And President Yanukovych himself was a symbol of corruption. In February 2014, the protests in Kiev turned deadly, and Yanukovych flees to Russia. Once gone, his lavish estate is open to the public, offering a glimpse into the life of excess from which he and Manafort have now been removed. When Paul Manafort went to work in Ukraine, he was making so much money for Yanukovych that he let the entire rest of his lobbying practice fall away. And when that relationship disappeared, when his client was sent into exile, he had nothing. To make matters worse, Manafort is also being sued by his old client, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, over a multi-million dollar investment deal gone bad. Eventually, Oleg Deripaska said that Manafort essentially took his investment. Despite his mounting problems, Manafort fails to adjust. He and his family kept spending hand over fist as if nothing had changed. So in order to keep up this facade, he ended up resorting to an increasingly risky and sort of convoluted series of financial and accounting and tax schemes. In December 2015, Manafort begins applying for loans, even though he's hardly the perfect candidate. If banks looked at Paul Manafort's actual financial situation, they would look at somebody who's had very little income coming in. Uh, they would look at somebody who would be a real risk for repaying loans. So what did he do? He just lied. He was committing bank fraud by submitting false documents to obtain loans from banks and lenders. He would lie about his income. He would lie about his debts. In one instance, evidence shows he takes a profit and loss statement showing his company has lost $638,000. He has it changed into a document that can be edited. 
and simply changes the numbers. From a $638,000 loss in the initial document that was sent from the accountant, after it was turned into a Word document that Paul Manafort could edit, it shows a $3 million gain. For Paul Manafort's purposes, he's telling the bank here, hey, I've got money coming in, and yes, I can pay you back. According to lawyers working for special counsel Robert Mueller, Manafort will use lies like this to secure $25 million in loans. In the early months of 2016, Paul Manafort is being pursued by Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska while also running a multi-million dollar bank fraud scheme. He's sitting in a place of desperation. His marriage is in a bad place. Uh, his finances are in a bad place. He's looking for some way to reinvent himself, some lifeline, and he sees Trump come onto the scene. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. For Manafort, Trump was nothing less than a political and a financial lifeline. Manafort uses his connections to score a job. This is the job application letter, for lack of a better word, that Paul Manafort submitted to Donald Trump through a mutual friend. He talks about himself as sort of an insider who knows how to navigate these very Byzantine party processes, but also casts himself as, quote, not a part of the political establishment. Though he's resorting to fraud to stay afloat, Manafort isn't asking for much. One of the key selling points that Manafort makes and the case for in this in this application is that he will work for free. He says, I'm not looking for a paid job, and that he didn't need the money. The pitch works. And by March, Manafort is Trump's convention manager. By late May, he's taken over. So joining me now from Southampton, New York, is the chairman of the Trump campaign, the head coach, if you will, Paul Manafort. Mr. Manafort, welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you, Chuck. Manafort may be working for free, but that doesn't mean he won't take advantage of his lucrative new gig. Almost as soon as he joins the campaign, he starts to reach out to these old clients and to find a way to leverage his connections to, to, to improve his balance sheet. Manafort and his former Russian client, Oleg Deripaska, have had a falling out over a multi-million dollar investment deal gone bad. According to the Mueller report, Manafort asks how he might use his new job to get whole with this Putin-allied oligarch and offers to provide him with special briefings from inside the campaign. All indications were when Paul Manafort said to Oleg Deripaska, this Russian oligarch, um, can I provide you these insights into the U.S. political system, to the U.S. election, to the Donald Trump campaign potentially, um, to get whole with you? He was referring to a debt that he owed Oleg Deripaska coming out of a failed business agreement. According to the Mueller report, Manafort's employee Rick Gates tells federal investigators his boss has him share internal campaign polling data with another employee in Ukraine so he could, in turn, send it to their former clients in the country. 
Gates will also tell the feds he understands Deripaska to be one intended recipient. Later, when Russian efforts to push the election in favor of Trump are revealed, this alleged move raises many questions. A lot of close followers of the Russia controversy saw in Manafort's willingness to share polling with some of these oligarchs, perhaps an effort to try to aid the Russian social media disinformation campaign that we now know was deployed to help Donald Trump in the 2016 election. I think, however, there's an equally strong and perhaps even more convincing argument that what Manafort was trying to do was to make money, and that's why he was sharing the polling information. He would want to show these former clients that he, had, he still had some serious clout. According to the Mueller report, Manafort did not acknowledge ordering Gates to share the polling data. Though he did not respond to American Greed's requests for comments, Deripaska's spokeswoman has said he never received any polling data or private briefings. Hillary Clinton is the epitome of the establishment. She's been in power for 25 years. Despite his pronouncements, Manafort's days leading Trump's outsider quest are numbered. In August 2016, Manafort resigns from Team Trump in what the campaign calls a shakeup. The following year, Trump is in the White House. And former FBI Chief Robert Mueller begins his inquiry into Russian election interference. Soon, Manafort finds himself directly in the crosshairs. I think Paul Manafort caught the eye of Robert Mueller because of his connections with Russia, connections with uh, oligarchs, all of his offshore business dealings. And then once they began looking, found all of this financial misconduct. As will be revealed in future court proceedings, the financial misconduct that investigators find includes the hiding of Manafort's Ukraine income, his multi-million dollar bank fraud scheme, and his secret lobbying efforts in Washington on behalf of his Ukrainian clients. In October 2017, he and his deputy, Rick Gates, go down hard. Breaking news tonight, the first indictment for the Mueller investigation. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his one-time top aide facing federal charges. At first, Manafort and Gates are indicted for hiding income from their work in Ukraine and hiding their secret lobbying efforts. Soon, their problems will grow. In the supercharged political landscape of 2017, not everyone sees Paul Manafort's indictment as justice at work. People try to paint this as some sort of a political uh, indictment or some sort of a political attack going after the president's former campaign manager. I think that when you have a $25 million bank fraud and $55 million in offshore bank accounts, any prosecutor in America would bring that case regardless of his connection to President Trump. Barbara McQuaid is a legal analyst for NBC News. But I do think, in addition, there was hope that they could use those charges as leverage to um, provide cooperation uh, from Paul Manafort. And it wasn't that they wanted him to, uh, you know, do in President Trump. They wanted to learn the truth. At first, Manafort doesn't flip. But a few months after the initial indictment, someone very close to him does. Manafort's former top aide, Rick Gates, pleaded guilty to conspiracy and lying to investigators. Gates is now cooperating with the special counsel. 
was really shocking when Rick Gates flipped on Manafort and decided to testify against him. This is a guy who had worked for and around Manafort for decades. He knew that he had worked closely with Rick Gates, that Rick Gates knew um, about all of the schemes. He was his close business partner and knew that his cooperation would likely be devastating. This is not the only trouble Manafort faces. In June 2018, prosecutors hit him with additional charges. They allege he's been coaching witnesses to say his secretive lobbying for Ukraine took place outside the U.S. and was therefore totally legal. That looked right there that this is somebody who is hiding legitimate uh, and serious criminal behavior. That was something that I think turned the tide uh, as far as what people looked at when it came to Paul Manafort's indictment. Manafort's bail is revoked. And the man who has lived in fine homes across the country is sent to lockup. Manafort's case is split in two, with one trial scheduled at the courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia, and another in Washington, D.C. On July 31st, 2018, a jury in Virginia begins to hear the first of these cases. Though Paul Manafort was the Trump campaign chairman for three months, this trial is not about that. Prosecutors argue that Manafort lied to hide his money when he was making it in Ukraine and lied to get more from banks back home when that work ended. In making that case, their star witness is Manafort's longtime associate, Rick Gates. Rick Gates is not a perfect witness, but very few cooperating witnesses are. But what Rick Gates could provide is essentially a talking roadmap and could tell the jury exactly how it was that Paul Manafort did his business. And for all of Rick Gates' own faults, there were documents to back it up. It made him a very credible witness. On August 21st, the jury finds Manafort guilty on five counts of filing a false tax return, one count of failing to disclose a foreign bank account, and two counts of bank fraud while acquitting him on 10 additional charges. When the trial ends, President Trump denies a connection to the case. It doesn't involve me, but I still feel, uh, you know, it's a very sad thing that happens. This has nothing to do with Russian collusion. Not long after his guilty verdict in Virginia, Manafort agrees to plead guilty to two conspiracy counts in his pending case in D.C. I think at that point he knew that the only way that he could reduce his potential prison exposure was to enter a guilty plea and to cooperate with the special counsel. And so he agreed to do that. I don't know if he ever intended to fully cooperate. Throughout his case, President Trump praises Manafort for not flipping and dangles the possibility of salvation. Tonight, the president is saying that a pardon for Paul Manafort, his former campaign chair, is not off the table. Two and a half months after agreeing to help prosecutors, the government says in a court filing, and a judge will later agree, that Manafort has broken his deal. He broke it because he lied to investigators about certain questions that they had and certain questions that no matter how he answered, he wouldn't have been prosecuted for. And the question I think that will always hover over this story is why? Why was he lying? Why did he decide not to fully play ball with Robert Mueller? He must have believed that the truth 
would be damaging to people he was trying to protect. I don't know if that was President Trump or others, or if it got to the very heart of cooperation about Russia. But it may be that those lies or whatever it was he continued to protect was the reason that Robert Mueller was never able to establish a conspiracy between Russia and the Trump campaign. In March 2019, judges in Manafort's cases in Virginia and D.C. hand down separate sentences totaling seven and a half years in prison. Manafort did not respond to requests for comment. His is a fall from grace for a kingmaker who once stood behind the most powerful men in the world. Many who studied Manafort's long career as an influence peddler remain baffled by the words of the Virginia judge in his federal case who said that, except for his recent crime, Manafort had lived an otherwise blameless life. There was so much evidence revealing Manafort to be a shady operator that to hear the judge uh, sort of almost applaud him for living a blameless life to that point was sort of galling to a lot of people. That phrase, in an otherwise blameless life, really does stick into the craw because everything that Manafort had done from the moment that he opened up his lobbying shop in Washington had been done to personally enrich himself at the expense of... American democracy. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.